And please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 56. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56. One of my favorite lines from the beloved classic movie, The Princess Bride, is where the Sicilian mastermind Vicini says, as I told you, it would be absolutely, totally, and in other ways, inconceivable. Five different times, this mastermind exclaims, inconceivable. At one point, his partner, Inigo Montoya, exclaims, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. The Princess Bride, like so many other classic movies, is beloved by each passing generation because of the astonishing story it tells, the unbelievable story it tells, if I may use the word, the inconceivable story that it tells. Children of all ages are amazed as they watch the feats of the dread pirate Roberts. They're amazed by the determination of Inigo Montoya. They're amazed by the spirit of Sweet Fezzik. And more and more, every time they watch it, they're amazed and delighted again and again with each new viewing. That's what good stories do, right? Good stories are more than just things that we know. Oh, I've watched that. Good stories are stories that amaze us. They're stories that delight our hearts. And it's not just fictional stories, right? It's not just stories like The Princess Bride. But how much more amazing are those stories when we know that they're true? That's what Luke is doing when he tells this Christmas story in Luke chapters 1 and 2. He's taking the true eyewitness accounts of all that led up to the birth of Christ the Savior, Jesus Christ. And he records them for us in a way so that as we read them, Luke doesn't want us to just go through an intellectual exercise. He doesn't want us to go through just a theological exercise. He doesn't want us to just say, yeah, I know that story. Luke wants us to read the story again and be amazed. He wants our hearts to be delighted again and again and again as we read these stories again and again and again. See, this story is not just an account for our heads. It's not just a bunch of facts that we need to learn. These facts are meant to bring amazement and delight to our hearts. Even though we know the story, right? We know the story. We've heard the story. We've seen the story acted out by cute kids. You should come to the children's Christmas play next Sunday. We've seen it. We've heard it. But we should delight in each new telling of the story. Each time we hear it, we should delight, not so that we would exclaim inconceivable, but so that we exclaim joy, right? Joy to the world, joy to every heart. So as we continue with our Advent series through this Christmas story in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, this morning as we look specifically at chapter 1, verses 26 through 56, let's allow the Holy Spirit to work through Luke's telling of this story, the story that, yes, we know so well, but let us be sensitive to the Spirit to allow him to rekindle our hearts with amazement. 
I know we know the story. You guys could probably tell me the story as well. I'm telling you the story this morning. But are our hearts engaged with amazement to ask that question, what is so amazing about this? Are we amazed at what we celebrate this Christmas? First, we're going to see in the story that Christmas is a reminder of the amazing promise of our Savior and King. Look at verses 26 and 27 with me, where Luke tells us, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, if Luke were making a movie, what would happen is you'd see the sign on the screen saying, six months later, and the camera's going to pan out from Judea, from Elizabeth and, and Zachariah's house, and the camera's going to travel up north to Galilee. And it focuses in on the small little town called Nazareth. And I mean it's a small town. You may think, I, I get small towns, I live in Oakhurst. No, 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 no. Oakhurst proper, not counting coarse gold and Awani, has about estimated population of about 3,000 people. Nazareth had a population of 500. That's small. That's small town. That's where everybody knows everybody, really knows everybody. And in this small town lived a young girl. Her name was Mary. This time, Mary's probably somewhere between estimated about 12 to 14 years old. She lived just a normal life of a, a, a young Jewish girl. She probably had normal plans for her day that day. Luke is emphasizing two different times that she is a virgin, that out of her love for God, out of her devotion to her future spouse, she has kept herself pure. And she's excited about this future spouse because she is betrothed, which is kind of like what we would say today is engaged, but it's a little bit more formal and it, it takes a little bit longer period of time. And it involves first a formal contract between the families and then a year later is finally the, the, the wedding. And Mary is betrothed, we know, to a man named Joseph. From Luke's account, we don't know a whole lot about Joseph. We don't know how they met. We don't know what their first date was like. We don't know how he got down on one knee. We don't know their engagement story. We don't know any of those things. But what's important is that we know what Joseph's, Joseph's lineage is, that he is a descendant of the house of David. Technically, Joseph is royalty. Technically, Joseph, Joseph is of this royal line of kings. But that was a long time ago. Joseph doesn't live in a palace. Joseph doesn't walk around as king. Joseph's a normal, ordinary guy because no one cares what his great, 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 great grandfather was because that was before the exile. That was before the Romans came and took over. And so, but that was his lineage. That's what Luke wants us to know, that he is of this, this royal lineage. And so we see that Mary's just an ordinary small town girl. And she's just going about her ordinary day. She's probably doing what you would be doing during that day. She's probably thinking about her upcoming wedding, saying, how many months more do I got to go? But this ordinary experienced the extraordinary when she's visited by the angel Gabriel that God specifically sent to her. Look at verses 28 and 29. And he, the angel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So here's this 12-year-old girl just going about her regular day, and boom, angel, right? Angel's giving just what would be normally the greeting of the time. Greetings. Hey there. How's it going, Mary? And Mary is, as you would be, a little confused, even a little troubled, a little perplexed, which makes sense. Right? If you're just going about your day, you're going over to Rayleigh's, and boom, angel, greetings. How's it going, Bob? 
right? They're, they're, she's shocked by this angel like we all be, would be, but Luke says it's not just the appearance of the angel. Look, look there in the verse. She is, she's amazed, perplexed, troubled by the angel's saying, by his words. It's not that there's just this, this glorious angel in front of her, but it's about what he said. He called her favored one, the one whom the Lord is with. Mary's thinking, you got the wrong person. She's, she's, she's just a 12-year-old ordinary girl. She has no special worthiness. She has no claim to a favored status. How could God send an angel to choose someone so unlikely and unimportant as her? I mean, just go down to Jerusalem. There you're going to find the important people. That's why she's troubled, Luke says. Then look at verses 30 through 33. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his, of his kingdom there will be no end. So the angel calms Mary, have no fear, and then he explains to Mary why he's come, that Mary is the object of God's favor, not because of her worthiness, but because of God's gracious act, this gracious act of what God's going to do, that God's plan is that she's going to give birth to a son, and she's going to call him Jesus. In Hebrew, the name Jesus means God saves. God is coming to save his people. And as we sit here this morning, this story, we've heard the story, right, for the umpteenth time. And there's a danger we face. There's a danger of going, I know, I've heard. I already knew what Jesus meant. We talk about it every Christmas. But we are in danger of missing how Gabriel's descriptions are so important here. That if you are living in this situation like Mary and the Jews in the first century, that they have been reading and memorizing, and meditating on, and praying for God to fulfill these promises from the Old Testament. God has made these promises of this Davidic king, like from 2 Samuel 7. God has made these promises of what this king is going to do, and, and, and this, this, this bringing of, of righteousness and peace, like in Isaiah 9 that Don read for us this morning, this king who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, who will sit on the throne of David, bringing peace and justice and righteousness forever. The, the angel's basically quoting Isaiah 9 here. He's saying this is who's coming, who Mary's going to give birth to. For hundreds and hundreds of years, they've been waiting for this. Hundreds of years of darkness. Hundreds of years of sorrow. Hundreds of years of exile. Don was right as he read from the, the commentary about Isaiah 9. It's a, the, 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 the Messiah is coming into the context of darkness, and that's exactly what we see in Luke as well. Hundreds of years where God has been silent, as Steve pointed out last week. Have you experienced times of darkness? Are you experiencing them right now? This season of Thanksgiving right into Christmas, it's a time where it's a joyous time, and it's, it can also be a very difficult time. And, and, and so you understand right where the Jews are at this point. Hundreds of years of being in exile, hundreds of years of being returned from exile, but still being under domination of foreign, foreign empires. And 400 years where God seems to have said nothing. When will God fulfill his promises? When will God bring hope? 
And Gabriel seems to give the answer right here. He's telling Mary, the time's right now. See, more important than what the child's name is going to be is what this description of how God is going to bring salvation and hope and fulfillment through this Jesus. First, the angel says that he will be great. We can kind of read right over that, but that's a huge statement. That means that he's going to be greater than John. Earlier, last week we saw, and earlier in Luke, that, that Zachariah was told that John was going to be great, but his great, he's going to be great before the Lord. Jesus has no qualifiers for his greatness. Jesus is just going to be great all in himself. In fact, in the Old Testament, when that word great is used to describe someone without any qualifiers, it's always used of God. That's who this Jesus is going to be. Second of all, Jesus is going to be called the Son of the Most High. The Most High in the Old Testament, El Elyon, is a title for Yahweh, for God. It emphasizes God's majesty and supremacy over all. This is who Jesus is going to be, the Son of the Most High. Third, we see Jesus is going to be the promised Messiah, the promised King, the promised Savior from the Old Testament the king from the line of David. He's going to rule forever, and his kingdom is going to experience no end. The promises he brings there are promises that are meant from generation to generation to generation and still today. This Jesus would rule forever. He would live forever. And in the Old Testament, the only one who's eternal is God. The only one who lives forever is God. The only one whose kingdom is forever is God. And that's who Jesus is being described as here. So as we think about these declarations, Gabriel something saying something more, so much more radical than the Savior's coming. He's saying that it's as if, he's describing as if Mary's child, as if Mary was going to give birth to God himself. Luke doesn't make it as explicit here. He's giving hints, and he's going to flush that out through the rest of his gospel. But that is the, what he's giving, is that God himself is coming to save his people through the birth of Mary, Mary's son. This is glorious news. This is wonderful news. But Mary's saying, I think there's an issue here. Look at verses 34 through 37. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing is impossible with God. You see, Mary knows that there's some issues here. She's unmarried. Mary is unmarried. And, and she has kept herself pure. And, and, and so how is this supposed to happen? Right? We're going to see later, Mary's not doubting here. She, she's, not having, she's not expressing disbelief. She just is asking that God seems to be promising something that has never been heard of before. And much more than not been heard of before, he's promising something completely contrary to what God has already declared. Is that you're not supposed to have a child until you get married. And so what is, how is this supposed to work? So this is different than Sarah in the Old Testament. This is different than even Elizabeth that Luke had just described earlier in the chapter that are well past their age of, of giving birth to children. Those are miracles. This is, I mean, compared to those things, this is, I mean, Cini's right. This is inconceivable, right? There is no precedent for this. I mean, think about it. If we didn't have the Christmas story, if, if you hadn't read this year after year after year, 
If, if you didn't see how, how that, 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 that Luke is portraying this greater fulfillment of Isaiah 7's prediction of this virgin giving birth, and you, or, or one you know is a virgin like Mary, and an angel said, you're going to have a kid, wouldn't you have the same question? I, I mean, that's a natural question, right? And the angel doesn't give an answer as to exactly the means that this is going to happen. He's not talking about the way this happens, but he does talk about generally the how. How is this possible? This is something God's going to do. The Holy Spirit and the power of God is going to make the impossible possible. This is just a supernatural, miraculous act of God. The same God who did these miracle births for Sarah in the Old Testament and Mary, uh, or proof of through Elizabeth, is, 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 is going to bring about these promises for her child. He would be called holy. He'd be set apart for God's, as God's promised Savior as the Son of God. Here's the point that Mary needs to remember. He's quoting right out of the Old Testament of what, what Sarah was told in Genesis, that nothing is impossible with God. And, and I love this. Look at Mary's response. Look at verse 38. Here's this just impossible situation. And in verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Consider for a moment, as, as, as many of you know, Mary. what the angel is asking Mary to do of being a virgin who will be with child. She lives in a very small town. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody knows her fiancé. They know they're not married yet. And, and in that time, it, it, and, and still, it, it's, it was socially and religiously unacceptable to be pregnant in that situation. If she obeys God, it's going to be really hard for Mary. No one's going to believe her. I mean, that, would you believe her? You're Mary's friend. You went to school together. You, you hung out. You're next door neighbors, and you see her. Mary, you're pregnant. That's okay. I'm still a virgin. Oh, Really? Yeah, I, I know it seems crazy. It was the Holy Spirit. <laughs> okay. Right? Right? She's going to be doubted. She's going to be ridiculed. She's going to be ostracized. What's, and what's her response to this situation that God is asking her to be in? I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to me according to your word. Notice that in this section of Scripture, the broader section we've been looking at, it is chock full of cross-references. If you have a, a Bible that gives you references to other parts of Scripture, it is footnote here and footnote here and footnote here and footnote here, all kinds of cross-references to the Old Testament. There's no cross-reference with Mary's reply. There is no one in Israel, when spoken to by the angels of, of God, has ever responded like Mary's responded here. She asked for no proofs. She asked for no signs. She asked for no help because of her stuttering uh, talk. She asked for no reassurances. She displays no hesitancy, no doubt. She simply receives God's word in complete faith. Not Moses, not Samuel, not Jeremiah. And certainly the comparison that Luke's giving is not the old, godly, wizened priest Zechariah. Not one of them has the faith of this 12-year-old girl. Not one of them who responds to God with, let God's will be done. 
it's amazing that, that, that this, this, this 12-year-old girl is the model that Luke is setting forward of. This is how we reply to God. This is the model of faith. Mary is God's servant. She will allow God to do and work through her out however God wishes. He can place her in whatever difficult circumstances that God desires because her faith and her hope and her joy, it's not dependent on her circumstances. God can take her through whatever difficulties that God's going to bring her through because that is not what, what her, her faith and her hope and her joy rests upon. Her faith and her hope and her joy rest upon that God's promises of his fulfillment of his long-awaited promises of salvation through this coming Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's the reminder for us. Luke is setting forward Mary as this reminder for us that we would be amazed at how God fulfills his promises in Jesus. That Luke is saying, this is he. This is the one that, that everyone has been waiting for. This is the point. As Lida says so rightly in a Charlie Brown Christmas. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Of God's fulfillment and all of his saving promises in Jesus. In fact, if you're visiting with us this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to say welcome. We are so glad that you're here this morning. This is a story of good news that God has written and recorded and preserved for you. Good news for you in this Christmas season. Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I don't know if I need good news. Everything is going great. And my family's coming to town and we got lots of gifts and I already have my, my, my ham bot and I'm, I'm good to go. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I need good news. Family's not doing so well right now and not many presents in the tree and I don't eat ham. <laughs> but whatever it is, that, that this is good news that, that, that God knows. Whether we recognize we need it or not, God says, I know that you need it. Because the scriptures are showing that we all need this good news because we are those who have rebelled against the God of the universe. We stand, we stand separated from a relationship with the God of the universe because of our sin. We live in a world that has been, been fallen and, and, and corrupted by our sin. And God says, I have come, I have sent the answer for those problems through the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so God offers you this good news. The good news is that God promised to send the Savior for hundreds of years throughout the Old Testament. He gave these promises, these prophecies, predictions of the Savior who had come, and God fulfilled them. And Jesus, proving that he is God, that he knew the future, declared the future, enacted the future, and brought it to be to save you. He sent his son Jesus to be born of Mary, to live the perfect life, because we never could live that because of our sin, and to die on the cross to pay the punishment for the sin that we deserved in our place as our substitute. And then he rose from the dead three days later to display and vindicate this truth of this offer of salvation. And that, it be, and that he purchased it freely, or he purchased it so that you could receive it freely. It's an offer of salvation for you, to have your sins forgiven, to be reconciled with God, to be promised eternal life now in a relationship with God and, and forever in heaven as a free gift of grace purchased by Christ on the cross. If you would repent of your sins and place your, your faith in him as Savior and Lord. We, this is what Christmas is about. This is what it, 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 that we have to celebrate no matter what the circumstances are of our particular context on a given Christmas. And we would love for you to know more. 
If you're interested in knowing more, if you have questions, if, if we would love to answer your questions and tell you more about the Savior and about how you can experience this gift of eternal life. Please don't leave if you have questions without talking to the person who brought you. Talk to any member of our church. I'll be at the back of the sanctuary afterwards. We would love to meet you and tell you more about this gift of eternal life, the best Christmas gift you could ever receive. And, and this is a message, though, not just for those who don't know Jesus. This is a message for us as Christians as well. My Christian brothers and sisters, where is your hope this Christmas season? Where is your joy this Christmas season? Where, is, where do you find your fulfillment this Christmas season? What, what things, if they're present, then you're going to have that fulfillment, and if they're absent, you're not going to have that fulfillment. Is your joy based on the abundance or the lack of presence under the tree? Right? It seems so silly, and yet sometimes we, we just get we get sucked into that, right? Of that that is what brings our joy. And, and, and I almost feel like as we get older, it's not necessarily the presents that are there, but it's the presents we, we want to be able to give. And the struggle sometimes of saying, I want to be able to give this and I can't and, 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 and finances and whatever difficulty it is. But does that define our hope and our joy and our fulfillment of being able to participate or not participate in, 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 in those gift givings? Is our fulfillment dependent upon the people around the tree? Will the presence of family and friends or the absence of family and friends define your joy? Are, are we seeking to find our fulfillments and our joy based on our experiences right now or despite the, the temporary happiness that those brings or the, or the sorrow we may experience that there is a joy or ful and fulfillment and faith? We have so much more than that a faith like Mary's, that we'd find, base it all on what God has done for us and fulfilling all his promises in Christ. See, when we understand what Luke is telling us here, that we, we learn that we're not, we're not going to find our ultimate fulfillment in all these other things, in, 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 in gifts or work bonuses or good times with family or friends or Christmas traditions, is that we find our joy in what God has done to fulfill all his promises in Christ. That doesn't mean we don't participate in other cultural practices. It doesn't mean you, get, you don't give gifts or give gifts. It doesn't mean, or get gifts. It doesn't mean that you don't gather friends and family. It doesn't mean that you don't do these things. It doesn't mean that you don't watch the Claymation Rudolph Christmas, which our family loves. It doesn't mean you don't do those things, but it means that we don't find our hope there. We don't find our joy there. We don't find our fulfillment there because our hearts are focused somewhere else that even if all those things disappear, even if there's a Christmas where none of them are, are present, we have joy because of what God has done in Christ. So here's a good question for you today at lunch, as you go out for lunch, tonight, over the dinner table, is, is how are we going to be intentional to keep our minds and our hearts focused on the joy of what God has provided through his son Jesus Christ in Christmas? Right? I, I know it's, it's hard, but we get so distracted, don't we? Am I the only one who gets distracted? You get distracted in all the things that are going on instead of taking time to, to, to focus and make sure we're intentional about remembering why we're celebrating. It's little things. Like I know what we're trying to do with our boys. They're excited because Grandma got them the Advent calendar with the candy in it, right? The candy just makes it so much more exciting, right? Especially when it's name brand candy. And so after dinner, it's dessert time, and open the Advent calendar, it's, you have to stop and say, why are we doing this? 
Yes, we're excited about the candy, but ultimately the candy is to remind us we have something to be so much more excited about, right? It's, 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 take, it's stopping, it's slowing down, it's being intentional of what is our focus and, and, and engaging our hearts. What are you doing to engage the hearts of your children in this time of year? If you're an empty nester, your children are gone, that doesn't mean that you don't need to continue to engage your hearts, to continue to be amazed and, and, and experience the wonder of it all. What are you doing to engage your heart and your spouse's heart? Our single brothers and sisters here, what are you doing not only to engage your own heart, but you have an opportunity of those that you're around as you're fellowshipping with friends and with family, of, of being, in, being able to be intentional, to, to, to lead the way of, of how, what is really important this year? Not to be distracted of making sure I've got all my, the presents for the kids lined up. That's not what matters remind us all of, of what matters as we engage our hearts to be amazed in the fulfillment of all God's promises in Christ. How do we find joy and fulfillment? Not in the circumstances we're experiencing, whether the, they're present, whether they're lacking, but in, in the fulfillment of God's promises in Christ. That's what's so amazing about Christmas. Secondly, Christmas we see is also a reminder of the amazing inspiration we have for our joy and faith. Let's, let's keep reading our story from Luke here. Look at verses 39 and 40. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered into the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So the, the, after the visit from Gabriel, Mary packs up her stuff and travels about a two- or three-day journey to the south, to Judea, probably around Jerusalem, and she's in a hurry. Luke tells us she's going with haste. To, to go and see what God is doing with her relative Elizabeth. She wastes no time to follow the angel's message. And look what happens when she arrives. Verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So Mary shows up and stuff starts happening. All right? The baby's leaping. I mean, I've heard of babies kicking. I've heard of babies moving. I don't know about babies leaping, right? That, that this, this, this word leap was used in the literature of the time of animals that skip and jump around, right? That's what's going on. Joy isn't, John isn't in there just going, yay, right? John is like, he's joy to the worlding in there, right? And that's not all. Luke is, is, is telling us that Elizabeth's also filled with the Holy Spirit. And all of us, po this is pointing that God's doing something here, Right? That God is, is, is like getting his megaphone out from heaven and saying, hey, I'm doing this. Something is going on right now. And look how the Holy Spirit-inspired Elizabeth tells us the significance of what God's doing. Look at verse 42. And she exclaimed, Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. See, Elizabeth here isn't giving a blessing. It's not like she's the superior blessing the inferior, but, but Elizabeth is acknowledging that Mary is experiencing the state of blessing, the state of grace from God. As blessed as Elizabeth is to have this miraculous pregnancy of John, God's doing something so much more blessed through Mary's birth of Jesus. You see, this blessing is not about Mary's faith or Mary's virtue or how, how great Mary is. That, that some way Mary is an inherently more holy than us. No, no, no. It's that it's, she's blessed because of who her son is. Because her son is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The blessedness is not about Mary's qualities, but who, but who her son is going to be. Mary is blessed by the gracious favor of God because she gets to be a part of what God is doing in Christ. 
But she's not the only one who's blessed. She's not the only one who gets to be a part. Look at the next verses, 43 and 44. And why, Elizabeth said, is it granted to me that the mother of the Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Here's what I was wrestling with as I was studying this. Why is this here? Why are these two verses here? Why has the Holy Spirit inspired them to be included? Verse 42 talks about the blessedness of Mary. Verse 45 talks about the blessedness of those like Mary. But what's the point of Elizabeth inserting herself here? We already know about the baby, right? We, so we're jumping, jumping around, right? So what's the point of this? Well, the point is that Elizabeth's recognizing she's blessed as well. The word blessed is not there, but the idea of blessing is here. She's amazed. She's like, yes, Mary is so blessed to be a part, but wait a minute, I get to be a part too. I get to be a part of what God's doing through the Savior. Why would Mary come to her? Why would God work through her and her child? It's not, she's recognizing it's not because I'm so great, so virtuous, so worthy, but God in his grace is allowing me to participate in what God is, is going to do through Christ. But it's not just Mary who's blessed. It's not just Elizabeth who's blessed. But then look in verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So the she, yes, is, is in, in some ways it's describing Mary. Mary is the one who believed. She is blessed with the experience of what God is doing through Jesus but notice how the Holy Spirit has inspired here. Notice how the language changes. She could have just said back what she said in verse 42, but something changes. Follow this with me. Look at verse 42. Elizabeth talks about blessedness in the second person. Blessed are you, second person to Mary. Verse 43, Elizabeth implies a blessedness about the first person to herself. Why is this granted? You can say blessed to me, first person to me. Look in verse 45. This blessedness is not just about those in Elizabeth's house that day. Not blessed second person to you, not blessed first person to me, but blessed is who? She, third person. A intentional shift from first and second, talking about you and me here, or you, the women there, to someone else. Do you see what's going on? This blessedness of being able to experience God's grace and being a part of what God's doing through Christ it's being extended beyond Zachariah's house that day. It's not just something that Mary can participate in and Elizabeth can participate in. It's to anyone and everyone who would believe like Mary. You want to experience this amazement? You want to experience this joy? You want to be a part of what God's doing through Christ? You follow the example of this 12-year-old this Mary. She's their example of faith here. See, this story is not like you're going up to the windows of the Bible and going, oh, that would be so great to be there. Wouldn't it have been so cool to be there and hang out with Mary and Elizabeth and just, and, and, and just be excited about all that God is doing? Luke's, Luke's not saying, yeah, come look in the windows. Luke's saying, come on into the store. Come on into the house. Luke's saying, listen, you're invited to the party. That you get to be like Mary and Elizabeth and experience a similar blessing of God's grace as you see what Christ would do in your life through this work of grace to respond with the same joy and amazement and faith that's reflected by these women in the Christmas story. Christmas is not just about what happened then, but what we should experience now. See, Christmas, the story is a reminder of the reasons for our joy, the reasons we should have faith. Christmas is not just something that we need to know about. Christmas is something we need to experience in this story. It's not just about the head, as I said. Christmas is about the heart. 
We get so distracted, as I said before, with all that's going on, and we get calloused because we've heard this story so much. It's a good thing to hear this story over and over and over again, but not if it calluses our hearts so it becomes just another story. It becomes a story that I've heard. It becomes a story that I know, but I've lost the wonder of it all. I've lost the amazement of it all. I've lost the, the, how God would use this as a gift of joy to my life, how God would use this as an encouragement to my faith to be like that of Mary. If we lose that, then, then we're losing that, that beholding and cherishing and delighting in all that God's done. We lose this gift that we can experience each Christmas. I'll be honest, I needed this this week. It's been busy, it's been crazy, we just got back, we went straight from these conferences where I'm presenting these papers and straight into Thanksgiving which, and straight into to, to last week and, and trying to catch up at church and work and you get so caught up in everything that needs to get done. If you know me, I'm a list person. I got my list and I have my list when that list is done and I have my list when that list is done. And you get so caught up on lists and so many good things and so many things dealing with Christmas season, having to deal with Christmas and making plans for the man for the family and, and Christmas for the church that you forget that that's not what it's about. You lose the joy. You lose the amazement. You lose, you lose the inspiration for your faith. And, and, and God's saying, you need to slow down and, and just be amazed at what I'm doing. And then I did the same in your life. And you can experience, it's a reminder of that joy and amazement and delight once again. What do we need to do to slow down? To, to focus again and, and, and to, to think upon these things until we not only know them, but we feel them once again. That's one of the reasons we're spending this time of these Sundays, the four different Sundays here in December on this Advent series where we're preaching through the story, where we're singing the songs, where we're reading these scripture. It's because we need to be reminded of the wonder of Christmas, the wonder of what God has done in Christ. Our hearts need to be rekindled with this joy and this amazement and faith. And we need, sometimes that means we need to slow down and we need to read again the stories we know so well but we need to read them again and again and again until our hearts start to delight in them again, meditating on them until our heart, callous hearts are softened to experience the joy and the faith that Mary and Elizabeth experienced here. That's what's so amazing about Christmas. Finally, Christmas is a reminder then of, of God's mercy and grace. Look at verses 46 through 50. And Mary said, here's her response, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So from verse 46 all the way through verse 55, we see Mary's response in what God's doing. She responds with a song. It's the very first Christmas carol. And that's what she's doing. It's, it's called Mary's Song or the Magnificat. Look at the focus of her song. Her song is like, look how great it is for me. No, her song is not about her. It's not about how great she is. It's not about how worthy she is. Her song is about how great God is. Except in verses 47 and 48, the subject of every verb in the entire song is about God. It's about what God has done that God is worthy of honor. God is worthy of praise because of God's gracious work, God's merciful work. Mary is recognizing the grace she receives from God, her God, her Lord, her Savior. She recognizes she needs the Savior that's coming. 
So in these first verses, Mary specifically focuses on two reasons for her praise. Look, look there. First, you see in verse 40, 48 that for, for, here's the reason she's praising, for God has looked with favor on her humble and lowly position. Then look at the beginning of verse 49. You have another four. For he has responded in his holy power to work great things for her. So as far as Mary's concerned, God owes her nothing. She's not getting this because she deserves it. She's getting this because she's a recipient of God's mercy and grace. She's earned nothing, but she's gained everything because of God, the work of God's grace. And then look at how she continues on. So beginning of verse 48, beginning of verse 49, she talks about God's grace to her, but look how it continues. After verse 48, first part of 48, God looked on favor with her, on her personally, but she says, but this is going to affect others too. All generations will call her blessed. Not because of how great she is, not because she's going to be venerated, should be venerated as some holy mother, but because of how great God is. When others, like us here reading this this morning, when we recognize God's mercy and grace and using Mary to bring about the Savior, we can realize that the same mercy and grace is available to us, and we have received that same mercy and grace as well through the Savior. God looks on our humble positions with favor as he showers us with mercy and grace through the work of Mary's child, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the same pattern of her being extended to others in verse 49. In verse 49, she says, God has been merciful and holy and the great things he's done for her, for Mary. But she says that's also true for others as well. Look how she goes from herself to others. And she goes on to say that God's mercy is going to be to all who fear him to every generation. You see this pattern? She says, look how great God is. God has been so merciful to me, and I'm the model that God's going to be merciful and gracious to others as well. Do you see that, that Mary's message isn't primarily about her? It's about us as well. She moves from what God has done for her to what God has does, will do for all generations because what God's doing that first Christmas is the demonstration of his mercy and grace that will be available to all. Then look at how this concludes. Mary continues to say in verse 51, And he, sh he has shown strength with his arm and has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is how God shows strength. That's what Mary's saying. This is how God fulfills his promises as he made to Abraham. This is the way that God works through his grace and mercy. It's completely opposite of the world. It's completely opposite of how the world works. God doesn't work by the world's means. He doesn't work through worldly power or worldly might or worldly pride or worldly wealth. He's not to try to earn and gain power as the world would, would wield it. God doesn't use Herod. Steve talked about Herod last week. Think about it. If God wanted the influencer in that culture, who does God go to? He goes to Herod, but God doesn't go to Herod. God doesn't use the Herods of the world to bring about his promises, to, to, to magnify his grace and mercy. God uses those like Elizabeth, like Zechariah, like Mary. That's how God shows his strength. That's how God magnifies his grace and mercy. See, Christmas is a reminder that God's grace and mercy works through the low, lowly and the humble. That's how God's always worked. Mary's quoting right out of the Old Testament here. The examples, that, that this is the way God worked through the barren, barren uh, Hannah to bring about the prophet Samuel. 
This is the way that God worked for the shepherd David instead of the mighty king Saul. God's the one who works for the 12-year-old Mary, not the King Herod, to bring us the Savior and display his grace and mercy from generation to generation. See, Christmas is a reminder that, that the working of God is not dependent on our strength. It's not about our ability. It's not about our, our means. It's not about our, our connections and relations. It's not even about our spirituality or religiousness. Christmas is a reminder that we are completely dependent on God's grace and mercy. See, Christmas is not a celebration about how we can elevate ourselves and make ourselves high and more spiritual in this Christmas season. That's not what Christmas is about. That if I do some more spiritually this season, this is the time to kick my spiritual game into order and I'm going to show up to church more and I'm going to do these spiritual things and I'm going to get right with God and, and elevate myself to be right with God. That's not what Christmas is about. Christmas is about God who is high becoming low, being born in a manger to give grace and mercy to those who are humble and lowly, who would receive that gift from him with joy and faith. So this Christmas, what Mary's saying is, do you want to know who God wants to use to make an impact for his kingdom, who, to display and magnify his grace and mercy? It's not the Herods of the world. It's not the kings and the presidents. It's not the, the powerful, the world. But in his grace and mercy, he wants to use you. He wants to use you if you are lowly and humble like Mary and seeing your need for God. Maybe you feel like you're in such a low point this Christmas season. Maybe a tough position like Mary. How could God possibly use you when you can barely hold it together? Maybe you're hurting from the loss of loved ones. Maybe you're feeling difficulties with relationships, difficulties with finances this year. First, this is a reminder that God gives particular care. He gives particular attention to those who are lowly, to those who are humble, to those who are hurting in these humble positions. This, that's what Christmas is a reminder of. And second of all, that those are the ones he wants to show grace and mercy so that they can show grace and mercy to others. My friends, you can have more eternal impact than any King Herod can. You can have more eternal impact than any national legislation that gets passed over the next month. You can have any, any more impact than any corporate donation that's made before the end of tax season this year. Because if, you're, if you receive God's grace and mercy humbly, then God wants to use you to show that grace and mercy to others. That's what makes an impact in this Christmas season. How can God use you to display grace and mercy in your workplace this season? When everyone's running around, end of season, Christmas deadlines, trying to get done so they can, they can get off on time, and they're stressed and they're crazy, how can you focus on God's grace and mercy to show people grace and mercy and then show the re them the reason why you have that grace and mercy to show them? How can you be a demonstration of grace and mercy with your families? Some of you guys are going to get together as your families, and it's going to be joy to the world the whole time, and everyone's going to get along, and you're going to cut the hand together, and there's going to be no arguments and no awkward conversations. It's going to be great. Merry Christmas. And sometimes you're going to go, and you're thinking, here we go. And how do you, how do you focus on God's grace and mercy that he's shown you so that no matter what they say, no matter what awkward comment they have, no matter what, what goes on in Christmas meal, that you can show them grace and mercy. 
You can be a recipient of God's mercy and a displayer of God's grace and mercy if you give them grace and you give them mercy. And then if you have the ability to show them why you're able to have that grace and mercy this year. How can God use you to display his grace and mercy this year, the grace and mercy you've experienced that he wants to use you to show others as well? Here's my hope. My hope is that as we are going through Luke's account of this Christmas story, that our hearts would be rekindled, that we would, that we would, I know you know the story, so what I'm concentrating on is that we would not just know the story, but that we would feel the story. We would be amazed at the story. We would delight in the story and all that God has done through his grace and mercy as we celebrate this at Christmas. I want us to be like William Chatterton Dix. And you're saying, who is that? He was an insurance company manager in the 1860s. And he suffered from serious illness that left him bedridden and after, after lengthy times of bedriddenness of severe depression. And so you know what he did in this time of darkness? He, he threw himself to meditate on, on God's hope and God's promises and God's joy that he can find in the scriptures. And, and he prayed over the scriptures and he meditated on the scriptures and he started to reflect what he saw in the scriptures in, in poetry as, he would, as he's reflecting the joy and amazement that he can have and, and who God is and his promises. One of these poems that Chatterton Dix wrote was meditating on this Christmas story, not just what we read this morning, but also last week and the next two weeks. And he wrote this poem called The Manger Song. And it reflected these amazing truths of what God has done in this Christmas story. And later his poem would be set to a popular tune, which we know now the combining of the two is called What Child Is This? And, and as we sing this last song, think about, I know you know the song, we've sung it a million times, but think, think about the amazement that Chatterton Dix is, is feeling as he's thinking about these things. How is this possible? What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? What is going on? You, you see how he's, he's, he's not just repeating the story, he's engaging his heart with the story. With whom angels greet, with anthems sweet, while shepherds watch are keeping. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. And then he speaks to his own heart. He speaks to us. We would speak to our own heart. Haste, haste, not just to know the story, not just to sing the song. Haste, haste, to bring him love, the babe, the son of Mary. Let me pray.